Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 20, The Next Generation, Rise of the Cappadocians. As you have no doubt noticed, this journey to Nicaea has been going on for a while now. It's been going on a while for us, who are entering the tenth month of this journey. It's been going on even longer for the people of the time. We are into the 360s now, a whole 35 years after the plucky bishops of Nicaea first put pen to paper and gave us the creed we have been talking about. For imperial administrators who had to put up with the numerous Christian quarrels of the bishops involved, the Nicene controversy was getting very old. And something else was getting pretty old. The key players themselves. Many of them have in fact already shuffled off their mortal coil in favor of eternity's embrace. Arius, Alexander, Constantine, both the Eusebii, even old Osius of Cordoba, had finally ended his sojourn at 102 years of age. Those that remained from the initial days, basically Athanasius and Marcellus of Ancyra, well, they're not exactly spring chickens now. Everyone is thinking that their time to go will come soon. Who will be left to champion this Christological cause? Well, buckle up your seatbelts, folks, because we are about to meet the next group of players in this saga, and they are a Big deal. So big, in fact, that they deserve their own introduction. So, <clears throat> here, let me let me try this again. God, the final frontier. Join us for the voyages of this Nicene enterprise as we embark on this star-studded trek into ancient history. The road to Nicaea, the next generation. Bum, bum, ba bum, bum. Hello there. After consulting with the podcast's legal team, I am required to make the following statement. The Road to Nicaea is a work of church history, and any resemblance to any sci-fi intellectual properties is purely coincidental. Especially if those IPs have really, really well-funded legal teams and very enforceable copyright protections. The Road to Nicaea, now brought to you by United States Copyright Law. Whoosh! There are moments in history in which events align so perfectly that they beggar explanation. We have just discovered such a moment, for three extraordinary figures are about to take their places on the world stage. Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, and Gregory of Nazianzus. Now, each of these figures is a history-making individual in his own right. Basil the Great and Gregory of Nazianzus are honored in the Eastern Orthodox Church as two of the three holy hierarchs. No, that's not a band name, although it would be a good one. It's a group of 4th century bishops who had massive legacies on the structure and liturgy and worship of the church today. I mean, Basil even wrote his own church service, and it's still said by millions of Orthodox Christians all around the world to this very day. And Gregory of Nyssa's theology is so profound that modern theologians are still drawing direct inspiration from him today. To have even one of these figures in a century would be remarkable. To have three of them in a few decades, just as the church is wrestling to define its Christology, well, that can seem providential. 
And even more extraordinarily, all three of these figures knew each other very, very well. Basil and Gregory of Nyssa were brothers. Gregory of Nazianzus was best friends with Basil from back in their school days. There is so much to learn about these figures and their interconnections with each other that we're going to have to change up our format on the podcast for a few months. As I've told you, I'm trying to tell the historical narrative concurrent with the theological developments that are taking place at this time, but we just have so much to absorb about these three figures that I'm going to have to put the historical narrative on the back burner for a few months. Don't worry, you'll still get plenty of the church drama that dominated each of these three men's lives, and we'll get to the history. But for the most part, the next several months are going to be spent just getting to know Basil and the Gregories, as literally nobody but me calls them, in all their remarkable ecclesiastical and theological output. We'll take this episode to cover some context that will pertain to all three of them. Together, historians refer to these three men as the Cappadocian Fathers, because they all originated from the region of the empire called Cappadocia. Where is Cappadocia, you ask? Well, it's modern-day Turkey in just about the northwest corner of the country. It was south of the region of Galatia, You may know the Galatians as the recipients of St. Paul's famous letter to them in the New Testament. Now, you might be thinking that a region with such an illustrious history that produced the incredibly learned and scholarly figures of the Cappadocians, you might think a region like this would be rich in education and culture. It must have been a real hotspot of development and trade and learning. And you would be completely wrong. Cappadocia is actually mostly mountainous, and in the ancient days had very little to commend itself beyond raising horses. There were few large cities to house any kind of major schools, and the ancient Roman Empire tended to think of Cappadocians as uneducated hillbillies. There was actually a famous saying that said Cappadocians were about as likely to speak well as a turtle was to fly. And yet, in the middle of this most unlikely place, was a group of highly educated Christian families with deep ties to the legends of the past. Local legends said that the Cappadocian churches had been founded by a guy named Gregory Thaumaturgus, whose name literally means Gregory the Wonder Worker. I actually don't know much about Gregory. You'd think with a name like that there would be a bunch of super dope miracles that he'd done and everybody was talking about. But no. Gregory made a lot of really awesome speeches and apparently did a good job as a bishop, which, don't get me wrong, is is pretty great, but not what you'd hope for from a guy named Wonder Worker. In any case, Gregory's main claim to fame from our perspective is that he was a direct disciple of Origen, and Gregory the Wonder Worker just happened to have baptized Basil and Gregory of Nyssa's grandmother into the Christian faith which puts the Cappadocian trio in a direct line of succession from the Alexandrine master. The specter of Origen, of course, has been looming large over the Nicene debate since its inception. Origen was the preeminent theologian of the day, and in many ways the warring factions were actually trying to piece together disparate parts of his legacy. On the one hand, Origen had used the famous adjective homoousius on at least one occasion, So supporters of Nicaea could claim him as an ally, and he certainly had no patience for Arius' claim that there was a time when the sun was not. On the other hand, Origen didn't particularly like Usia language for God, which would have endeared him to the Eusebii and then to the Homoians after them. 
Moreover, Origen was always very careful to differentiate the three members of the Trinity from each other in precisely the sort of way that many people feared Nicaea prevented them from doing. Now, of course, the debate has moved on since Origen's day, and new terms and thinkers are being bandied about, but they are all building on the foundation that Origen laid. Only in the Cappadocians do we find thinkers who might rival his brilliance. The Cappadocians come to us, then, inhabiting the tensions latent in the best Christian theology of their day. Now, those tensions were geographical, not just ideological. Cappadocia was but a stone's throw away from some of the major anti-Nicene power centers in the empire. But they also inhabited an empire full of political tensions. Political tensions that they knew could all too easily spill over into ecclesiastical affairs. You will recall from last time that Julian was emperor just long enough to scramble virtually everything in the church before dying ignominiously while chasing after some Persian soldiers without his armor on. His successor, Jovian, had no real business being on the throne. He was just some dude that most of the imperial guard happened to like. But he did have the good manners to die quickly before he had the chance to mess anything up. The next guy to be elected, a fellow named Valentinian, is known to history as Valentinian the Great, which is an encouraging sign, but there are degrees of greatness. I don't know anybody who would place Valentinian on the same level as Constantine, for example. Valentinian had a pretty rocky rise to imperial power, and he actually spent a fair bit of time in exile during Julian's reign. Now, we're not sure why, but there are two possible reasons. One is that Valentinian had the bad luck to be the commander of a military operation gone awry and wound up taking the fall for the whole debacle. The other possibility is there's a story that a pagan temple attendant accidentally sprinkled Valentinian with some holy water, which he took the wrong way. He supposedly muttered, I am not purified, but defiled, and then punched the poor attendant in the face. The Roman Empire had a very strict no-punching-pagan-temple-attendance-in-the-face policy, especially when the pagan emperor Julian was on the throne. Whatever the truth is, his exile was short-lived, and Valentinian was in the army with Julian again by the time of that fateful campaign against the Persians, which led to Julian's death. He won election to the emperorship mostly on the basis of being normal for a change. He was competent, his first loyalty was to the army, he was a pious Christian, and he was willing to compromise. At least a bit. You see, one of the deals Valentinian made to get elected was that he agreed to immediately name a co-Augustus. This would prevent the problem that everybody had just run into, where the empire's sole Augustus kept dying and throwing the empire into complete disarray because they hadn't named a successor. And Valentinian did indeed name a co-Augustus, just like he promised. He named his younger brother, named Valens. Right away, Valentinian has already made a colossal mistake, namely adding another person to the historical record named Valens. We already have one Valens in this story. You might remember he's one half of that heretical bishop-celebrity power couple, Valens and Ursatius, and that is quite enough Valenses for church history. But Valentinian pressed on heedless of the confusion he would cause to history nerds reading about him. He was also heedless of general competence, because Valens didn't really have any credentials to speak of other than being the emperor's brother, and hence someone whose loyalty was not in doubt. Valentinian would take the western half of the empire, and Valens would take the east. Now, despite this colossal mistake in promoting his unfortunately named brother to the imperial college, 
Valentinian, and really the Emperor's V, as literally nobody but me calls them, distinguished their reigns by being fine, basically. I mean, they weren't great. Valens trotted off to the north to mostly win against the Germanic tribes, then off to the east to mostly lose against the Persians. Valentinian was off in the west, putting down raids and revolts on the Rhine River, then off to the northwest to put down raids from the Scots and Picts in modern-day England, then he sent troops to the southwest to put down raids in North Africa. You get the picture. The empire was never really at peace, but its armies were still strong enough, and its leaders still competent enough, to keep the number of dumpster fires manageable. But the tension going on was not just military. The Emperor's V also brought several cultural changes to the empire. Most importantly, they were the first emperors in about 50 years not to be descended from the House of Constantine. That was change enough after such an important dynasty that had set the tone for most of the 4th century. But Valentinian and Valens were also military men through and through. They had made their careers in the army, they had risen to fame in the army, and ultimately they had become emperors because of their strength in the army. Of course, Julian, Constantius, and Constantine had all had military experience, but the signs of Constantine were born to power. They served in the military as a resume builder to prepare them for wielding that power. Valentinian and Valens had the military in their blood, and it showed. Many of their contemporaries paint them as boorish, uncouth, and just generally uneducated hicks. The truth is probably a little bit more moderate than that. The Emperor's V definitely disregarded the old power systems and diluted the privileges of the aristocracy that so many had enjoyed and that the Constantine family had made good use of. But the Emperor's V diluted those powers primarily by expanding them. For example, they threw open the doors of the Senate to more and more comers, especially those who had achieved military distinction. Over the course of their reign, the Emperor's V would expand Constantinople's Senate by seven times. It was seven times its original size by the end of their reign. Now today we might welcome this as a democratization of the institution. But the old elites tended to take an approach more in line with the villain of the classic movie The Incredibles. When everyone is special, no one will be. If there was one area where the two brothers shone, it was imperial finances. Roman taxes had become something of a labyrinth under Constantius and Julian, mostly because of rampant corruption among the tax collectors. If there is one thing that people of any time hate more than tax collectors, it's corrupt tax collectors. So the Emperor's V instituted a series of reforms designed to clamp down on corrupt tax collectors, and it worked pretty well. So that's one feather in their cap. But of course, this isn't a podcast about taxation or the culture of the Roman Senate. No, this is a podcast about church history. So it is to the religious policy of the empire during this time that we must devote our attention. What kind of world would the Emperor's V build for the plucky Cappadocian trio that would soon be navigating it? Well, for starters, it was a world in which toleration was the norm, but Christianity was once again the favored religion of the elite. Under Valentinian, basically any religion was permitted in the empire except for Manichaeism. The Manichees were a religious sect of Persian extraction who believed in a dualistic universe caught in a struggle between the good god of light and the evil material world. It's a fascinating religion born out of its founders' encounters with Christianity, Buddhism, and Zoroastrianism. 
a very rare blend in the ancient Roman Empire, though a pretty common one in Persia where it was founded. Alas, we don't have time to get into the particulars of it. For now, just know that the poor Manichees have been persecuted in the Roman Empire for a long time because their religion came from Rome's great enemy, Persia. And they're going to be persecuted for a long time to come. But they will endure. The great Christian Saint Augustine will have a long period of time when he worships as a Manichee before returning to the church. All of that is just to say that the persecution of the Manichees under the Emperor's V was nothing particularly new or noteworthy. What was noteworthy was the reinstitution of Christianity after Julian had cast it off its high perch. What's even more remarkable is that within a few years, the benefits of being a Christian were so substantial, it would have been hard to imagine the emperor had been a pagan just a few short years before. We have records of imperial officials who were Christian under Constantius, converted to paganism under Julian, then went right back to Christianity once Valentinian was on the throne. We also know that being the bishop of a major city at this period in time was a very lucrative gig. We have quite a bit of information about the Bishop of Rome in particular during this period. We know that many of the wealthiest aristocrats in Rome looked on his holdings with envy. In fact, one historian of the period goes on to say that the Pope will be, quote, sure of being enriched by the offerings of ladies, and riding in their carriages, and wearing fine clothes, and giving magnificent dinners, so much so that their entertainments surpass imperial banquets, end quote. That's quite a remarkable thing to say. The Bishop of Rome can throw a better party than the Emperor. That's the level of his resources. Valentinian had a problem with much of this, and he actually prohibited clerics from receiving personal gifts from widows. But even without those gifts, the wealth of bishops continued to increase. And where there is wealth, there is conflict, and such was the case in Rome. We know of one case when an election to the bishopric of Rome was disputed, and that conflict grew so fierce that 137 people died in a riot in the middle of church. Now, of course, that level of out-and-out -out warfare was not the norm. But you only need one bloody riot in the middle of church to leave a lasting impression. You might wonder what the Emperor V's tolerance level was for the Christological tensions currently simmering throughout the Empire, especially with these kinds of riots going on. This is actually a matter on which historians disagree. The general consensus is that Valentinian probably favored the pro-Nicene position, while Valens was more partial to the Homoian formulation of the blasphemy of Sirmium. But we should also remember that these positions aligned with the dominant theological parties in each emperor's domain. So it may have been less a matter of deep personal faith, and more about trying to keep the ecclesiastical ship together. Indeed, as a matter of policy, the emperor's V joined the long line of their predecessors in just wanting everybody to be normal for five minutes. They had big, important things to do, and really big parts of the empire to run, and lots of people attacking their borders, and if the bishops could just stop yelling at each other for five minutes, that would be great. In that, the emperor's V really aren't any different from their predecessors. However, they did make an important imperial innovation. They learned a powerful truth that had eluded Constantine, Constantius, and all the others before them. When the bishops refused to be normal and demanded the emperors tell their enemies off or call a grand council for the 18th time so we can figure this all out, the emperors could just 
not. Seriously, they could just not do it. That's right. The Emperor's V had discovered the notion of personal boundaries. That's right. The Road to Nicaea is brought to you by Good Mental Health. And what's more important to good mental health than firm boundaries? Boundaries. Because sometimes no is a complete sentence. Of course, I'm exaggerating a bit. Emperors before them had declined to get involved in church matters, especially when they were busy fighting wars. And Valentinian and Valens will do their fair share of ecclesiastical politicking before our story is done. But they really did take a more hands-off approach to the whole matter. Valentinian was a bit better about this than Valens. Right after Valentinian was made emperor, a bunch of bishops came and asked him to summon a big council and decide a bunch of matters of faith. Valentinian's reply was that, hey, I'm just a layman, and I'm not going to meddle in the bishop's business. That's their job. They can meet if they want to, but I'm not calling it. This is a really remarkable change in the relationship between emperor and church. You may remember that Constantine saw himself as the bishop of bishops. He was their commander and superior, and it was his job to marshal them together in order to maintain a unity in worship and doctrine that would safeguard the empire's political and military unity. Now, Constantine was probably more enthusiastic about this than any of his sons, but the general idea that the emperor was responsible for the bishops persisted in his dynasty. Valentinian was articulating something that looks a little bit like our modern notion of separation of powers. And I want to emphasize that it really is just a little bit. That idea does not come into its own until the modern period. But still, Valentinian is saying something kind of like it. The church is the bishop's business. They needed to handle it without getting the emperor involved. Valentinian was not a bishop and did not presume to dictate their doctrines to them. Valens, on the other hand, was a little bit more active in trying to settle doctrinal disputes. In fairness to him, though, he also had the lion's share of disputes to adjudicate. And who else should be at the center of those disputes than poor old Athanasius? And this time, I really do mean old. About age 66 or 68 years of age, which was a pretty full life by the standards of the time, Athanasius got a letter from Valens saying that all the bishops that Constantius had exiled and Jovian had unexiled were now exiled all over again. Athanasius, thoroughly sick of this constant coming and going, packed his bags and went into exile, about two miles away. I'm serious. The exile prevented Athanasius from being in Alexandria, but that was the only restriction. So Athanasius set up shop in a little cottage about a mile out from the Alexandrian city limits, which is sort of the political equivalent of being in the car with your sister on a road trip, and you've divided the car in half, and then you walk your finger right up to the border between your space and your sister's space, and then you're like, why are you mad? I'm still on my side, still on my side, nanny nanny boo boo. Except if your sister was the Roman emperor and could have you killed with a word. But Athanasius was quite done with all the running around sick of being accused of murdering people who were still alive, sick of having to travel all across the Mediterranean, sick of arguing. He was done with it. And so he obeyed the letter of the exile and no more. And Valens, knowing full well the Alexandrians' nasty habit of rioting when the emperors tried to force religious practices on them, 
issued a special letter granting Athanasius exemption from the exile. He would return to his city and finally, after five exiles, have some peace and quiet. Well, relative peace and quiet, that is, because those nasty Ariomaniacs were still up to no good, there were still heresies to be refuted, and Athanasius was going to keep theologizing at them until they repented. But though his will was strong, his time was waning. He knew it, his enemies knew it, and so did the Cappadocians. So now that we have set the scene for this next generation, it's time to take a look at them in earnest. We'll start with Basil the Great, or as he was known in his own day, Basil of Caesarea. Peer pressurer extraordinaire, political mastermind, and consummate man of action. With his skills, he may just be able to pull off the synthesis of theological acumen and political skill that Athanasius could never quite muster. What new solutions will he bring to these old problems? What will the church look like as he begins to put his own thumb on the scale? We'll just have to start our detour through Cappadocia to find out on our increasingly circumferential road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.